Welcome back to Don't Call It a Book Club. My name is Luke. My name is Daniel. And we're going to run this episode a little bit differently than normal, Dan. We're going to skip the intro because we have a little surprise for people at the end of this episode. Uh, so I guess, I guess we just jump into the book. And I'm sure everybody knows this. We're doing the last section of The Crimson Queen. So I think we stopped at chapter 27 last time and we're just going to the end yep. of this episode. Mm-hmm. So just a quick little overview in case people don't remember what exactly happens. So last episode we stopped with, I believe, Jan had just met the Crimson Queen and I think Keelan had just gotten a book out of that little underground library. And so in this section, Keelan actually makes the trip to Herath, the place where the Crimson Queen is, and he starts his training. And Shin? Shin? Zen? Oh, I think Shin. Shin, maybe? Yeah, let's go Shin. Yeah, I'm okay, I'm going to go Shin. <laughs> and Shin and Nell kind of do their little hook-up-y kind of things. And, and then Keelan and the Crimson Queen end up actually looking into Jan's head to see if they can unblock his memories. And they see, I think they see basically what happens in the cataclysms and how they become immortal. And then that releases that trap and starts that huge battle where like everything comes to a head. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's basically it for, for a wide ranging overview. We'll, we'll go, we'll go way more detail. Yeah, uh, but before we do that, we need to address a few of the things that we brought up in the last episode because they are almost immediately answered in this last section that we read. Luke posed the question, why do not more people know this language? I think you asked that question. Right, yeah. And that's explained in, I think, the first three chapters of this section. Where Keelan says, oh, it's it's not just a typical language. There's some extra detail to it that make it hard for people to learn it. So, all right. Fair enough. I think our, our reasons are still va- perfectly valid, though. Uh, yeah. But you did address it. Fine. Right. The other thing that we talked about in our last episode that is brought up in much more detail in this section of the book is the shapeshifters and they talk about how the shapeshifters treated us like cattle this is in the book that aliana wrote Mm -hmm. and i think it's it's an interesting metaphor at first if you're thinking from the perspective of the people but if you continue that metaphor and think about what that would be like in our world that would be like if suddenly all the cows started hunting down and murdering cowboys in the Wild West. And the cowboys then went on the run from these vast herds of cattle. Well, no, these single cows. It would be like if in a giant herd of cattle there was one cow who knew what you were and what you were doing and could kill you at any moment. Right. Yeah. It'd be Yeah. So like... Currently, I guess in this metaphor, the cows are not don't know that we're taking care of them so that we can eat them later. And then, 
it would be like one of them or a group of them, a small group, all of a sudden are like, wait a minute, <laughs> when someone leaves, they don't come back and then mount some form of resistance. I don't know what cows would be capable of doing. And I guess, th- is that your point where it kind of breaks down after that? Yeah, it's, it. well, I think it's just really funny to continue it after that because then you're, it, okay, if cows... If we knew cows were intelligent enough to realize what we were doing, we would pick a different animal. We would say, cows, too much work, not worth it. But these, but, uh, I don't know, pigs or chickens, yeah, they're not going to rise up and start murdering us, start hunting us down. Right. Yeah. Um, Fair point. (laughs) I just really love the image of cows riding, running across the American West hunting down cowboys in vast herds and cowboys like on the run from the cowboy or from the cows right and and the cows the the aware cows kind of trying to keep it a secret so that they don't panic the other cows <laughs> right the other cows are like hey have you seen have you seen carnis recently i, I haven't seen <laughs> and they're like oh yeah um uh she just ran off one day i guess and secretly they're like i wish I wish I could tell them and reveal this dark secret, but their minds just couldn't couldn't handle the truth. And then the cows, once they have killed all the cowboys, they write a book. <laughs> and put it in a library. <laughs> Although, to be fair, maybe it gets put in the library. Okay, so related to this, they kill one of the, what, Genthyaki? Yeah. Okay, they kill one of the Genthyaki, and the queen gets information about this, about kind of what it is and how it worked. And she basically knows that it's a shapeshifter. And she's like, oh, I really need more information about this. And after she gets that information, a stranger comes into her city. She invites him into her council chambers with her and just a few other wizards and says, who or what are you? <laughs> And Jan says, I'm an immortal person. And the queen's like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) So the queen is aware that there's a shape-shifting demon out there. That Okay, and at this point, that's all she thinks it is, is a a really powerful shape-shifting demon. But she doesn't know any more information, and one of them just attacked a caravan that was headed towards her. And then this new person shows up and claims to be an immortal, super-powerful sorcerer. Mm. all right but but it gets a little bit worse because she gets a book that tells about these creatures and learns that they're immortal so so at this point at this point she has somebody in who who she doesn't really know who's claiming to be immortal right after a shapeshifter attacked a caravan that was headed towards her. Uh, yeah. I, I I think I see your point. <laughs> that she's... I think... So, I think she's just being very... I think she's very confident. Oh. I, I think that's the problem. She is so confident. Right. So, I, I... I think there's a decent chance that she's considering... She has considered that this person is, like either a Genthyaki or someone there to do harm to her. She just is so confident in her own abilities that she doesn't think it matters. I 
Okay. I guess that's fair. But the level of confidence then is borderline stupid. Right. Because she you also have to consider she has not tested herself against somebody like this, we think. They right. Her the she the only information she has about this thing. Well, because I'm saying the most likely conclusion is that this is that Jan is a Genthyaki. If I were the queen, obviously as readers, we know that there's only this is the last Genthyaki, but the queen doesn't know that. Right. So if I were the queen, the first kind of assumption that I would make is this person, or maybe not assumption, but I would definitely have the thought that this person could be one of these shape-shifting demons who we don't who we know almost nothing about and killed an entire caravan of guards. We don't know their magical abilities. We don't know anything about them. And she decides she has the she probably has the power to deal with it. But the thing is she I don't think she can actually fully know her own capabilities because who is she comparing herself to before Jan comes along? Mm. She she right, she's only comparing herself to the people that she knows. And it's not like she knows any immortal sorcerers that are super powerful. So she's just guessing that she is going to be able to take care of this, right? Mm-hmm. Which I do, like, I do think that she is smart enough to have the thought that you're talking about right now. Yeah, yeah. And I'm assuming that her her reasoning for doing it is just because she's super confident in her own abilities. And you have to also consider that she's like on her home court, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I definitely, so I was definitely giving her the benefit of the doubt that she could have had this thought, right? It just seems so bold. It seems incredibly bold of her to do ev- basically everything she did with Jan. Um, right, because she, yeah, because she believed him very quickly too. Well, and we don't know, like she told him she believed him very quickly, but mm-hmm. we also see at the very end he is like <laughs> in some weird BDSM dungeon that she's created. <laughs> That's true. I forgot about that part. <laughs> so perhaps because we don't, we never really get her perspective, which is kind of cool because, you know, she's still this character that's behind a mask to us. Um, but she does tell Jan that she believes him within like, no time at all of an interrogation right i just think it's important to keep in mind we know it's the last genthyaki but nobody else except like jan and aliana and is it damon or demon demian i think demian yeah demian know that it's the last genthyaki and you have to think that they didn't know about genthyaki before this right Uh uh-huh so if if i'm in their shoes and I learn about this immortal being that's been feeding off of human or and, and is part of a race that's been feeding off of humans. And again, as far as they know, there's more on top of me thinking that there are Gintiaki now. I'm also now wondering what else there is, you know? Yeah. So like, yeah. I don't think I don't think I'm just thinking, oh, man, this might be a Gintiaki. I'm thinking this might be a Gintiaki or some other monster or just like sorcerer that's way more powerful than me oh for sure well as soon as you learn that he's immortal it's like oh this okay things are fucking crazy and this actually brings me to 
An- another point that I want to make, the queen is like a genius, right? The queen is super smart. Yeah. So is Aliana. Genius. Super smart. Super good at sorcery. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that we have read so far that says that talent has to come to people who are really smart. True. So it just seems like it's super lucky so far that most that everybody we've seen that is a talent is a genius but it could come to like it could have come to keelan's dad from what we know right now and his dad could just be sitting in a fishing boat somewhere using it to find fish yeah i mean honestly as far as we know there are more talents out there they're just not smart enough to use it right 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 because it's it's just a link to the void. It doesn't say it's at least from what we know now. It's it's just a link. So there's nothing that says you have to be super smart as well. It doesn't give you that ability as well. It seems to just give you magic ability. Yeah, and it seems like the the talent is it's just a stronger connection to the void, right? Right. There's nothing right. necessarily special about it. It's just that you're way stronger. Right, exactly. And they say that it only happens well, it seems like it happens less than once in a generation. And there's just time periods where it happens way more often. So maybe they just don't, they just think that it happens really rarely. <laughs> but in reality, there's talents everywhere, or not necessarily everywhere, just way more often. And they're just too stupid to know what to do with it. <laughs> so it's not that we're getting lucky with smart people getting the talent. We oh. just only hear about the smart people getting the talent. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's perfectly, perfectly reasonable. I mean, you also have to imagine the, the I mean, okay, this is going to sound harsh at first, but I'm going to bring it back. The, the dumb people probably just think it's God talking to them or this ability is from God. Now, I'm not saying that believing in religion makes you dumb, but what I am saying is if you could suddenly find fish in the water with your hand you probably would just think it was the deep one helping you out you you probably right, wouldn't like you have some divine gift or something exactly and so that would just be the end of that and you'd be you'd be a fisherman who is really devout and that's it i mean i don't know i don't know if we've had we haven't really heard many stories from religions outside of ama i think right but right there's got to be a ton right and there's got to be a ton of stories. There's a what if just the stories in each religion is like somebody with the talent? Yeah, that, I mean, it seems like that's what um, the head of the the pure was. It Tam, what is that guy's name? Tamman something. Whoever the finger bones are from, that guy. Oh, right, right. They make it sound like if you get a talent and you convert them to the pure then they become super good at, I don't know, being the opposite of a sorcerer, being a pure. Right. So that to me makes it, or seems super obvious that the first paladin of the pure was a talent. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I just, I kind of want that story of an idiot who is super gifted in something. Like, Harry Potter wasn't an idiot. Harry Potter is like, you know, he wasn't a genius, but he was kind of smart. And I just want right. the story of, because there's nothing that says intelligence or 
education is linked to a lot of these sudden gifts that people are given. And I just really want that story of somebody who is an idiot, but really good at magic. I think it would be hilarious. Yeah, I could see it too. Because I was going to say maybe Keelan isn't that smart, but I I think Keelan's clearly pretty smart. Yeah, I mean, he he picks up on the fact that I think he picks up on the immortality thing really quickly. Well, I mean, he also is one of the best translators of High Cal Uni, and he's like, oh yeah, that t- <laughs> that too. <laughs> so I think that that is also part of it. Yeah, but I I think you're right. There, it would be super funny to see a super talented, like a, an actual talent, come in, and he's like going to this school, like just like Keelan is. And you just get snippets of the teachers being like, he's such a fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> God damn it. If he was smart, we'd be killing it. But no. And yesterday he turned my chicken into a rock. I don't know why. <laughs> he doesn't know why. Like just... And the worst part is he doesn't know how he did it. So we can't do it. <laughs> and just there's there's maybe a part in the next or in one of the books where one side gets super hyped because they've discovered this talent that's going to be on their side. And then he turns out to be useless. Oh, that would be incredible. Yeah. Like they finally find the pure, find a talent and convert them to the pure. And he is just the biggest idiot. And especially in the super hardcore order that you have to be very religious. He just doesn't get any of the religious stuff at all. And they keep trying to teach him and he just, (laughs) Yep, it's not sticking. I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> this Ama guy sounds like kind of a jerk. <laughs> they can't have bird fireworks? I beg we should be able to have bird fireworks. <laughs> no, Daryl, no bird fireworks. <laughs> yeah, I think that that could be a good addition to to a future book. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if it comes up. Oh, man. <laughs> um, Kind of talking about the pure mm-hmm. there's in that little section where that we get where uh Sinecus, the the pure that's we're actually kind of like mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and he's on that trip with Demian, the immortal yeah the immortal slash shadow blade guy and we get a little insight into what the the uh pure is because Demian says something, he gets mad at Sinecus and he says something along the lines of that he's a slave to a creature that he can't even comprehend. Mm-hmm. Which implies that the pure's powers just come to some like, creature, apparently, that I guess is just somehow infusing them or affecting them when they do whatever ceremony. Mm-hmm. And... I guess that's another example of like we talked about these huge unknown beings that just we hear about but are not explained at all. Right, right. This is something that I wasn't sure whether to take this as creature just used as a way of identifying the deity. Like that Demian wouldn't want to say that Amma was a god because Demian probably doesn't believe that Amma is a god. So he just said the word creature to make it seem like it's uh, okay but i i also had the thought that it seems like the shadow blades have some sort of creature that lives under the mountain that they get cool powers from so and at the very beginning we were told that 
these giant deep ones would be seen by us as gods and have or some connection to the void because Keelan, when he almost awoke that one, it alerted it alerted the Crimson Queen. Right. So I, And I guess now that you bring that point up, the difference between I don't know if this is gonna be offensive or not, the difference the difference between creature and god is kind of semantic where you could argue that this is affirmation of Seneca's faith, right? I Just... think so, but I I don't know. I imagine, well, maybe not. Because well, I mean, he's basically just saying that there's a higher being that's giving you your powers, and you're beholden to him. Isn't that ex- basically exactly what Seneca already believes? <laughs> yeah, this is actually a good point. And at first, what I was thinking is, well, yeah, but they probably only think that Ama is like the one true god, and every other god is just fake. But, at, like, they know the Shadow Blades have some power that they're getting. And they, so the, they probably think there are other gods. It's just Ama is super powerful. Right, right. So I'm actually, I'm not going to go the other way with this, where this, maybe this was some super, uh, you know, deeply spiritual moment for Cynicus when this immortal guy is basically confirming that there's, <laughs> essentially this god that he's he's doing the bidding of i mean yeah but then again i don't think senecus had doubts about that after his eyes started burning fire (laughs) good point i want to talk a little bit i i want to keep going on senecus and damien because their dynamic is very interesting sure and okay so when they're breaking in to what it's like the salt fortress salt stone fortress yeah when they're breaking into the salt stone fortress and senecus witnesses damien climb up a sheer wall and open up a portal and like teleport the whole time where you're going with this the whole time he's like Mm, is that sorcery? Let me check with my little feeling about if that's sort. No, no sorcery yet. Huh. Okay. All right. And then finally, I think Keelan mentions to Senecus that he's a sorcerer. And Senecus has this revelatory moment like the climbing up the wall, the teleporting, the opening up a portal to another dimension. It all makes sense. The shadow sense. blade powers. The shadow blade powers. It all makes sense now. And it's like, dude, what what even is sorcery if it's not that? If it's not teleporting <laughs> yeah. and doing all this crazy stuff, what even is it? <laughs> yeah, I, I had this exact point. I just basically wrote down Cynicus isn't very smart. <laughs> and there's also, Keelan also makes the, or actually, I don't know if it's Keelan, but part of his revelation is that he has that little bone that hides his powers. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I think I think it's Keelan that helps him understand this. When he goes, oh, if I have this, maybe there's another thing or another way to hide their powers. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, obviously, dude. Well, and they he probably knows that a bunch of the sorcerers attacked the throne room. This is this has happened before yeah (laughs) come on dude 
Yeah, Seneca's not very bright for most of this. He's, his heart's in the right place, right? <laughs> but, and then you see just like on their little trip and they stop. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Him, and, him and Demian, they, they do the whole thing where they kill a bunch of slavers and stuff like that. Yeah. And I don't have specific examples, but Seneca's just comes across like pretty, pretty slow in that section too. Yeah. Uh, the other part where he comes off as pretty slow is they break in. And they're on the, they get on the wall of the, the, the sorry, of the saltstone salt fortress, and they're on the wall, and they see a guard. And Senecus is about ready to draw his sword, presumably to fight and kill this guard. And Demian says, hold on a minute, and kind of sneaks around and stabs him and kills him. And Senecus says, is this really what Ama wants, us killing these guards? And he, I mean, he does say, like, sneaking in the shadows and stuff, but the guy's dead. And you were going to probably murder him as well. Right, like he was going to do the exact same thing as Demian, basically. Yeah, but he was just going to pull out his sword and, like, fight him to the death with his sword out. And it's like, is that really that much better? <laughs> Another example of he should have known about the sorcery is Demian's sword when he just pokes that one guy. <laughs> And the dude gets like black veins running across his face, and then his eyes go black, and he dies. <laughs> and Seneca's just like, "I didn't really feel anything, so I don't guess not. I think it's fine." I mean, they they probably have poisons in this world. Fair. So I guess. so fine. Let's say let's give let's give him that one. Let's give him he saw the sword. It's not sorcery. Maybe it's some cool poison. And by cool, I mean horrific poison. Right. So, I mean, Senecus is just clear eyes, full hearts, no brains, I think, is what we go Senecus. So, good choice on whoever chose him to go with Demian. Because. I mean, that was Aliana, right? Right. I don't know whether she just got lucky or she was like, this dude's a freaking idiot. He's not going to realize that Damien's a sorcerer. <laughs> because presumably yeah, she, if they had chosen any other pure, right? The pures are like kind of fanatics, right? So yo, absolutely. as soon as they see sorcery, like what Seneca sees constantly, they're going to probably attack Damien. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely, I mean, 100%. They see him scale that wall. At the very least, they see him open a portal, and they're like, "Yep, that's that's definitely sorcery." I don't know about that other right. stuff, but portals. He opens a portal. He opens a portal, and a bunch of shadow blades, and Aliana comes out. Red flag. <sighs> I'm gonna say. <laughs> okay. Uh, speaking of the shadow blades, did sure. you have this moment where they sound super cool, and then you just have to light up? the shadows yeah. and they're just they're just hiding in the shadows and that's it they don't they're not, it's not magic they're just dressed in black and they go in the shadows <laughs> right there's that i think there's that scene where maybe it's i forget who it is maybe demian or something or aliana i don't mm-hmm. know where all the shadow blades come out and then they kind of disappear and then they whoever it is lights up the whole room and they're just like huddled over in the corner that ruined Shadow Blades so hardcore for me. Yeah, it was... exactly. At first, because we see we see Demian's powers on the road, right? Mm-hmm. And he he uses the shadows to like kill all those guys, the slavers, and 
um, he uses it to get around the Crimson Queen's little trip blade thingy. Mm-hmm. And it's, you never, I don't know about you, I didn't think about just lighting it up at that point. But then whoever it is, once they get into the castle, brings that point up and it's like, oh, well, I thought that was super cool. But <laughs> if you're a sorcerer, and a pretty, because you presumably making a light is one of the first things you learn about sorcery. Right. So you don't even have to be a good sorcerer. Right. To render their powers just useless. Well, here's the thing I thought, though, is I don't think it even needs to be sorcerous light. Oh, no, I, I agree. But I don't. I, so you would have to be just carrying around a super bright light. Or just a torch. Because all it means is that it seems like how their power they don't have any powers they just hide in shadows so it seems like if you want to catch one of these guys go into the shadows area with a torch and you'll just see them right i i think that's true you the only thing is i do think it has to be a it has to be a big enough light to where there are you completely erase all the shadows right because i think there's a scene actually where they're fighting and there's a guard with a torch yeah, the I think light you're doesn't right. Extend to the walls and stuff, so he's kind of just fending off them at random. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think that's fair. But if you got enough, from what I understand, if you got enough torches and you lit up a room to where there were no shadows, then you would see these people. It's not like they go. It's it's not like they can teleport through shadows. It's like they just hide in them. Right. Well, no, I think they can't teleport to not to shadows that are not touching. Right. But well, you would see them go between. Right. But if they're in one shadow, they can be basically anywhere in that shadow. Right. 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 So another thing is they can't really do anything during the day, <laughs> which, sure, you could just do all of your intense stuff at night. But and I, I OK, they are assassins. So it's not like they're fighting large scale battles. So this doesn't really matter. Mm hmm. But still a pretty big setback to where just whatever you do has to be in poor lighting. I guess, but you can say this about vampires as well. So True. Um, Which, I mean, maybe we're... (laughs) We might be dunking on them a little too much because, I mean, everything has a drawback, you know? I guess. It's just they were set up... The way they were set up was so cool, it seemed like they could like liquefy into shadows and bounce out wherever they wanted to and then the reveal was like somebody tiptoeing along the side of a wall and then suddenly getting a spotlight shown on them <laughs> and turning and looking at the sorcerer as they got stabbed to death right just the image of one of them getting revealed is just makes them seem kind of pathetic yeah <laughs> they're they're awesome yeah up until that moment right exactly they're just like they're just like little cornered guys like oh shoot they can see us oh they can see us (laughs) and i mean i think they're supposed to be really good fighters but for they're trained to fight with their advantage right so there's that scene where i think shin kills one of them because Mm -hmm. they lose that advantage and he's way better of a fighter than him than the shatterblade right so i guess it's a good it's a good move to teach them how to be good at fighting with their advantage, but maybe also learn how to fight just generally. <laughs> yeah, maybe if somebody's got, you know, a well-lit chamber 
and you happen to get revealed for some reason, you know how to do something about it. Right. Which I, I'm sure they're capable fighters. They, they're just fighting against like Shint, who's a well, who's supposed to be super good at fighting. I get, well, so that, that might be not a good point. Yeah, actually. And Shin, Shin like is able to go toe to toe with Demian, who seems to be the best fighter that we have witnessed. Right. Yeah. This I actually have a point about that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, go ahead. So one, this isn't my point, but one kind of amazing that Shin is as good as Demian because Demian is set up as this guy that back in whatever his time, he was one of the top, I forget what they're called. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wh- whatever blade Sword master. dancers, I think, or sword singers. Right, right, something like that. And he's he practices several hours a day, at least in that time period. Right. I'm assuming that he just has gotten rusty, but so I'm kind of amazed that Shin is able to beat him. Right. I I took it as it would be like pitting a football team from the 1930s against a football team from 2018. Oh. So the game has evolved drastically and we've improved in our technique since the 1930s. Oh. And so Demian is like really he would demolish everyone back in his time but he's stuck in the past so that's and i think that's why shin gets an advantage on him because he realizes that he's just doing the same yeah the same cycle over and over again and while it may have been kind of lost to time in a way shin is able to use what i assume is just modern techniques to defeat him well there's that there's that part right before they fight where they both recognize that they're doing the same they know the same technique right and demian gets pissed because (laughs) shin has slightly changed it right and i think you're right where it's gotten better (laughs) and i think it's kind of ironic that demian is just like so mad that they've changed it and shin's probably just like i mean we made it a little bit better so like relax dude (laughs) i mean i'm gonna kill you with it so it's chill (laughs) Uh, but uh, but that's not actually my point. My main point is I didn't have that strong of an opinion on Demian. I kind of thought he was a little cool just because of his powers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Demian sucks. Whoa. Because he he talks about, I think there's moments where he talks about honor and like when they should fight to see who lives and dies, mm-hmm. right? And whoever whoever wins the fight is uh, I, don't, I don't know basically basically confirmed as should be the person that lives right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. shin pones him uh-huh and then but demian had gotten this little nick on shin <laughs> right 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 and then demian gets destroyed and then just like kind of retreats yeah but then he just lets shin die because he got a tiny little nick on him that's horse apples oh yeah, I'm. I don't think any of the, let's call them old generation talents. I don't think any of them are honorable in any way. Right. I think you're probably right at this point. Like Demian talks about honor, and he talks about the good old days, 
but in fact they all were just like really afraid to die and that caused them to do something just freaking horrible to it sounds like hundreds of thousands of people because they didn't want to die like they cannot talk about honor at all oh yeah that's true yeah like they're this is a good point they seem to me like the biggest cowards of anybody because they just didn't want to die and so because they didn't want to die they just murdered thousands of thousands of people and it's like yeah you guys don't really have room to say anything to anybody about morals at all in a similar vein about them not having any morals i'm gonna go back and say jan sucks oh yeah i was demian just, sucks what i was gonna say jan also sucks and especially when you look at his memories even before he is aware that they're gonna murder hundreds of thousands of people to get immortality which, like, come on, dude. You should have figured that out. We all knew it was right. coming. Even before that, he knows that Aliana kills a lot of people to get her way. And he just doesn't care. Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah. You know, she uses, you know, maybe not the most clean of methods, but she gets what she wants. And it's like, yeah, that's a sociopath you're dealing with. <laughs> yeah. And I think... They talk about these cataclysms, and I think they shouldn't use the term cataclysm. No, it's a genocide. Yeah, exactly. They're saying cataclysm as if it's a natural disaster that was, like, horrible. But no. This was, this was a, this was more, this was a double genocide. <laughs> that for the purpose of giving, like, nine people extra lives. <laughs> right well yeah so the immortals have everyone else can call it a cataclysm because they don't know but the immortals have no right to call it anything other than a double genocide right and I, jan tries to be like oh i feel terrible i had to hide my memories like no <laughs> you suck dude you don't get to do that that's not fair yeah, he should not be able to hide his memories right uh, no absolutely not that's not right the other okay the other bullshit thing the other complete bullshit about all this is they keep calling themselves immortal they're not fucking immortal <laughs> true they're they are objectively not immortal because th we're learning what happens when it wears off and they start getting old again right they just they just live way longer because they've taken all of other people's lives yeah right that's essentially what it is they've just like stolen everybody else's one-up mushrooms and they've <laughs> they've run out at this point that's not immortality and... they're just being they're just old and you brought this up last episode where jan mentions where he can get just get shot in the eye and die <laughs> right right like just just go just go vegan and eat healthy man <laughs> It's much harder and it's not as exciting and sexy as murdering hundreds of thousands of people and stealing their souls, but it accomplishes basically the same thing. Okay. Right. You'll live longer. Eat a bunch of antioxidants. Blueberries. They're great for that. Right. <laughs> clean conscious, clean conscience, clean body, live longer, you know. Go to the gym. Stuff. Do some cardio. Go to, go to the gym. Yeah, for sure. 
Because <laughs> they're not, again, you would, they could probably come up with spells that keep extending their life. Don't you think? Maybe. Because, because I imagine, and usually I think there's, when in fantasy books, when people are trying to achieve mortality, the main issue is not health of the body. It's like some existential meaning where your brain or something or your soul just cannot cannot live longer than whatever. Right, period. right. This does not solve that problem, does it? The idea that there's something else, that there's like a soul that can't live forever. Right, uh, although actually maybe... I guess the idea that they have to have these people's souls maybe is the point that yeah, they need to achieve immortality. That seems to solve the problem because maybe that is true, right? So maybe they do have sorcery to fix their bodies and right, and just like you were saying, and they need like soul power. They need soul okay. power. <laughs> Valid point. Okay. So I think there's another possible another possible explanation for what caused the cataclysm okay so here's an alternative hypothesis maybe aliana thinks that she caused it i'm not so sure and this is this is why i think it may have been a different cause so the there's two kingdoms that are the focus of the cataclysm the ones um, we're just going to refer to them as the ones in the north and the ones by the ocean. Okay. The ones in the north have this spell that will destroy the ones by the ocean with a big tidal wave. Mm-hmm. And the ones by the ocean have this spell that will destroy the ones in the north with black ice that will encapsulate everything. So if I lived in the north and it was cold all the time, and I had a spell that could warm it up a little bit, I would consider it. <laughs> okay. So then if I was like the ruler of the North and I had a spell that could warm up my whole country, make it much more habitable, easier to irrigate, better agriculture. Oh my God, I know where you're going with this. I would probably consider using it. But what's the consequence of warming up your country? Well, all that ice that's in the north is going to melt. <laughs> Where does that ice have to go? Somewhere. So you send it into the ocean. And then you cause a tidal wave that floods this ocean city. I think the cataclysm could have been the result of climate engineering. <laughs> okay. To- this is topical, by the way. I know. So props. Uh Thank you. The the only thing is, I don't think it would be very sudden unless... Well, it's sorcery. Right. Also, okay, here's the other... Here's why I had to think of this. Okay, there is water that is still covering the ocean city. The ancient ocean city is underwater. That means mm-hmm. that the sea level had to rise. It, it wasn't just one tidal wave because the tidal wave goes in destroys everything and then recedes back into the ocean the water had to come from somewhere so the the ice melting in the north seems like the best place for the water to come from right i agree with you on that point and 
Yeah. I mean, because they're not, like, creating a bunch of water, I assume. I, if that is true, then there are so many other... That opens up a giant can of worms for how they could yeah. create water from, I don't, from wherever they would have created it from. It's much easier. The, the explanation that they just melted a bunch of ice is much easier. Right. I think so. Here's the thing. The other, con- the other uh, nation did the black ice thing, right? There's right. not really a good explanation for that. So I think you might be right about the whole climate engineering thing. <laughs> the argument that takes us a step further is that this country that is by the ocean has been warning these guys and they're like listen man you keep you keep warming it up the water gets higher it's just ruining things down here you don't freaking stop and we're sending some ice up your way we're gonna make and then they're just like they're just like they're they're like i don't think that's true i don't i don't think it's really affecting them this is just making our life way better let's keep let's keep rolling with it and then finally the giant iceberg up in the north melts and or like it falls something happens to create that tidal wave that's caused by that and it just decimates this place and the guys are like fuck it let's kill them all (laughs) for the sake of the rest of the world this is what it is for the sake of the rest of the world we need to kill them all before they yep they drown everyone yep this is it (laughs) so good try aliana i mean you got really lucky Right. With this with this happening now, but uh, yeah, I don't think you're as smart as you think you are. <laughs> this is a good theory, Dan. <laughs> um, I had one more topic that I wanted to talk about. That's probably pretty brief. It's that so we we already mentioned I think in maybe the first episode that they can create magic, their own type of magic, mm-hmm. and it's talked about more in this section of the book where the crimson queen is creating her own type of magic and it's talked about how impressive that is because apparently it's super difficult to do this kind of thing right but it seems very convenient to be able to create your own magic and Mm. i think it's kind of implied that that hasn't happened in a while but the things that the incentives to do that are things like people don't recognize your magics they don't know how to combat it right so you're talking about how when the sorcerers from dimeria visit the pure or when specifically when the crimson queen fights aliana at the end and aliana has no idea how to combat her source of magic right exactly i i mean i guess this the reason that it's not done that often is just because it's super hard but it seems like if you want to gain an advantage over someone you just create new like ways to do magic and they don't know how to combat it right i and i I think it's also the crimson queen is a is a genius among geniuses like aliana is probably is like a genius level but it seems like the crimson queen is even smarter than her and so it seems like the crimson queen is very very unique among people also there haven't been that many people experimenting with magic in the last thousand years because of the pure that have kind of stifled all creativity true with magic it does seem incredibly powerful though 
to the point where you would think, I don't know, if, if Alion was as cool as she claimed to be all the time, you would think she would have some contingency plan to deal with to deal with it. But then again, I think it just speaks to how badass the Crimson Queen is. Um, yeah, I think I, I think you're right that that's probably the main point is just setting up the Crimson, Crimson Queen as super amazing. Yeah, yeah. Something, <laughs> something else that I think is super amazing is the trap that Aliana laid for everybody in the tower was basically just getting Jan to launch the most massive flaming snot rocket at everyone. <laughs> you know, I hadn't given it that thought. If you don't know what I'm talking about, reread the description of what happens to Jan when when he explodes in green fire and you'll know exactly what I mean. <laughs> I'm going to have to I'm going to have to give it a reread because I I remember just generally what this was like, but I'll have to double check because this is another example of you reading way closer than I am. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's it's really good. Just read it. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin the the fun. It's great. Yeah. Also, I didn't think I would be saying this. I think I'm team chosen now. Oh. Oh yeah, we haven't even talked about the last section. I think I'm team the chosen. Okay. Tell us why. Well. Yeah, they're scary, and they rip people's arms off, but they murdered Ali. Well, all right, we don't know if they murdered Aliana. Aliana, right now we don't. We we now we don't believe anything that we don't see. Right. Um, but they tricked her into that, like into dying. Essentially, yeah. They. They essentially got this retribution that I have been wanting against Aliana for. So- it was just so satisfying. It's it's kind of frustrating when we think that Aliana is going to get away, right? Right. I don't know if that's how you thought, but she gets kind of basically completely defeated by the Crimson Queen, but she manages to get away and get back to her portal, and then she's back to her little home garden or whatever so we think that she's going to be fine just kind of humiliated right and then the i think it's the black vizier yep comes up and she she looks up and sees the black vizier and at this point the reader is just like oh man because the black vizier already died right well we didn't see that so at first i was like wait (laughs) did he not I still right. want this guy to die. Is it, How is he not dead yet? Right. And then it's revealed that it's actually the Genthyaki who has survived because when Aliana told the Chosen to kill the Genthyaki, she told them to do whatever they wanted. And mm-hmm. what they wanted to do was take him and have him replace the Black Vizier to eventually murder aliana which was so freaking satisfying at the very end it was also really cool if you think about the fact that it wouldn't have been possible if aliana hadn't released the genthyaki from her control Mm -hmm. um and so that was like key 
to this whole plan coming together was and i don't know if they if the chosen and the gethyaki planned it i don't think that they did i think the gethyaki is a tool of the chosen now and they're the ones right i I think it was the i think it was the chosen just taking advantage just being opportunistic yeah absolutely um but they wouldn't have had the opportunity if, if aliana had kept him as a slave when she murdered or tried to have him murdered because right. she could have just told him, hey, don't kill me right now. I will say that everybody in the that last chapter when Aliana dies seems evil. They all seem bad. But of the of the evil ones, oh, team chosen. Right, because we don't care. It's a book, right? We don't care about being on the right side. <laughs> me and you don't, because we're just reading it. What? And the chosen are now revealed as having some like awesome plan right right because they have been there's that time that it implies that they could have slipped their bonds at any point Uh uh-huh so in this in that case they i think it implies that the chosen have a larger plan right absolutely yeah and we don't really know what it is yet i assume that it's not good yeah i don't know i think they're set up as seeming creepy and evil which means they're probably creepy and evil. But we don't know a lot about who they are, how they came to be. I mean, sure, they're monsters, but I I don't know if they murdered hundreds of thousands of people to gain a little bit longer lifespan. Right, that's I mean, true. Although it is, it is <laughs> talked about, I think, that the Chosen completely destroyed the Shan's home home uh, continent or whatever right so there it does seem like there would be a lot of really good parallels between the chosen and the immortals that are walking around now almost it seems almost more likely that the chosen are just better than the immortals that have tried to gain immortality it seems like the chosen may have done something way worse and gotten way more (laughs) powerful yeah i think that's a good point the chosen have or very similar to the immortals just better at what they do (laughs) right maybe they're more evil i yeah i might be regretting the team chosen comment but you know for now well i I mean this this brings me to our to my point that i just said that as readers like we don't really we don't have to pick a side in terms of good versus bad we don't care right i mean yeah kind of i don't want to be on the side of like double genocide jan (laughs) great nickname yeah um, but I think I think the chosen can come up with a cooler plan than Aliana can, and that makes me think that the next book is going to be wild. Oh yeah, it's going to be incredible. So we mentioned a surprise at the beginning. We we should probably get to that. Oh yeah, yeah. So we you know have a lot of questions about the book. Um, so we just decided to ask the author alec hudson thanks so much for being here alec before we get started with anything else we're not going to beat around the bush there's going to be no softball questions right off the bat we need to know was the eel soup good turns out jan is uh, allergic to onions which were in the soup so he never actually tried it so i don't know sorry about that oh my god You've got to be kidding. Me. However, <laughs> knowing the consistency of eel, I would be surprised if it would hold up in a soup. It's kind of. Have you guys tried eel? It's like mushy banana. I, I can't have. imagine. <sighs> yeah, I. 
but okay, here's why I held out hope for that eel soup, though, because this was my initial thought was that it sounds awful. But I held out hope because, like, if you were to get eel soup, it seems like the best place to get it would be in this swamp. Now, that seems counterintuitive at first, I understand, but I think eel, eel seems like a gross food. But if you put it in a gross environment, like it's in, it's in its natural habitat. Uh, I've had eel many times, actually, at Japanese restaurants. Um, never in soup form. I would imagine that would be a difficult style to eat it and have it be delicious, but you never know. Um, I guess I could uh, up my my food description game and next time I will, I will definitely provide a bit more, a bit more choice details about, you know, how, how exact, how marshy and eely the soup actually is. <laughs> I think, I think Dan actually really enjoyed the mystery of it. It, I, I, I know he, he texted me a couple times just talking about how much it added to the book that, uh, you know, he just, he just really wanted to try the eel soup. That's, that's all I know. Right. It was just, it was hyped up so much and there's just, we'll never know. And I guess that's fine. It's one of the great mysteries of, of the universe. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's nice to have some mystery in the world, but it was just, I, I guess it's still going to eat at me, but that's okay. Uh, so <laughs> moving on to a more legitimate question, um, I guess just, just to kind of get us started off, I wanted to ask like how you got into writing, uh, kind of why did you choose fantasy, that kind of thing? Well, uh, it was the genre that I grew up reading. I, uh, I, you know, when I was a very small child, my mother read the Book of Three and uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and things like that to me. And uh, I loved dinosaurs as a kid, and I feel like dinosaurs is a natural progression to dragons from there. Um, and uh, I read it all growing up. I loved it. I loved um, high epic fantasy when I was, you know, a young teenager. I was reading those Dungeons and Dragons books like Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I always wanted to try and instill the same sense of wonder that I got reading in 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 readers. Um, and so uh, for, for many years, you know, I think as you start to adult, you have to uh, sort of decide to put some things by the wayside. Um, and then as you reach a certain point in adulthood, you're like, you know what, that sucked. I want those things to come back. And so, um, I started, uh, writing, I think it was my early thirties. Um, and, uh, it took me a few years to work up to where I felt like I could do a novel. And during that time, the, the ideas for the Crimson Queen were just hating. And then, um, and then I just sat down and decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I did it. And, uh, I guess the rest is history. Yeah. Cool. So do you, do you write full time now? I do. Um, as of last February or so, um, Queen ended up doing quite well. Um, there are a lot of advantages to indie publishing. And uh, honestly, one of the biggest is that uh, if, if books sell, the author gets a lot more of the proceeds. And so, yeah, I'm able to do this full time now. Hopefully huh. we'll see how future books do i might have to go back to work but uh as of now i can spend my time writing and uh talking with gentlemen like yourselves <laughs> right uh i kind of picture uh when you kind of have a self-published uh book be relatively successful i imagine you get like a decent amount of pride that 
you're, I guess, almost solely responsible for that being like really successful, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, just getting a book accepted in traditional publishing is a tremendous achievement. So I'm sure they, they feel a lot of pride as well. But I have to say, I think there is that little edge to it in that, <laughs> that the, you know, the every choice I made, whether it was from plot or character or cover or editing or anything like that, it, it did ultimately come down to me. Um, and so the success it, it has enjoyed, I, I suppose I, I can feel a little bit prouder than someone who, you know, uh, didn't have a marketing, the marketing machine of a major publishing house or a top editor uh, tweaking the story to make it more marketable, things, things like that. So I, I, yeah, I definitely think so. Um, although not having been traditionally published, I don't know. Right, right. That that kind of leads me into my uh, next question. So there's this quote by um, 21st century artist Drake. Uh, he once said in his poem, Forever, quote, labels want my name beside an X like Malcolm. Everybody got a deal. I did it without one. Uh, just does that speak to your experience publishing? And do you take any issue with Drake giving himself the title uh, last name ever, first name greatest? <laughs> um, no, I feel like, uh, as he said, he's got to push it. No one else is going to push himself, so he has to do it. Um, so I, I have no problem with someone's self-aggrandizement in that, in that sense. We all have different approaches to, to, to the creative arts. And uh, some people, you know, push themselves as the greatest things in sliced bread, and some people... Um, perhaps are more humble, approach it more humbly, but no, no shade on Jake Drake, um, except that he's a Raptors fan and I'm a Celtics fan. So. Ooh. Um, uh, backing up about, sorry, what was the original, what, what Drake, uh, the, the original Drake quote is labels want my name beside an X like Malcolm. Uh, yeah. Everybody got a deal. I did it without one. Yeah. So, so, uh, something interesting just to, to play off that for a second is that, um, when my book did really well, Queen, the book that you read, um, I actually got a call from a senior editor at Tor, which is one of the major publishers of fantasy science fiction books. And she asked if I would send them my next book that wasn't part of that series. Um, so I guess the, uh, it, it to play off what Drake said there, um, yeah, it, it's definitely satisfying to come to the attention of people within the industry by doing it yourself. Right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, is there something in the works that you have for that that deal coming out? Uh, nope. No. And, I, and there, there, there were no promises made. So she just said the way that publishing works is, uh, especially traditional publishing, is that there's there's layers. Um, hmm. uh, a author writes a book, writes a query, sends it to an agent. If they are able to be picked up by the agent, then that's sent to the publisher. So getting a, a basically what the publisher was saying is that I could circumvent that whole process and she would look directly at my, at the next thing I send to her. Uh, but there was no you know guarantee that she would take it. Um, I haven't started writing anything because I'm right now uh, focused on finishing the Crimson Queen trilogy. Um, but I, I do have some interesting ideas um, and uh, I'm going to try and keep fleshing them out. And, uh, uh, and I, this, I think there's a good chance that I'll, I'll at least try to go, uh, traditional for my next book, just to mix it up and and see if uh, see what that experience is like. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds kind of like an audition, but an audition where you speak directly to not necessarily the director, but you don't have to go through the normal route, um, right? Which is yeah, that's really cool. Um, 
so speaking of Drake giving him the title, Drake giving himself the title, uh, last name ever, first name greatest, something that Luke and I noticed as we were reading is how you chose titles for people and groups. One that Mm -hmm. really stuck out to us was the Thorn Flail of the Seven. Uh, It just sounds incredibly epic. Uh, We were just wondering if you'd ever considered giving yourself some kind of epic title like that. And if so, what it what it would be? Uh, I, I'm a little. I think that I, I perhaps don't have the correct personality to be called something like the Thorn Flail. <laughs> um, uh, so I I'm not sure. I'd have to think on that one for a while. Oh, sure. Um, but sure. I will say I will say that uh, the awesome titles uh, that you guys appreciate, I think, we appreciate because they're novel and new. So I'm just going to throw out some titles for you right now. And let yeah. me tell you, you tell me if you think it sounds awesome or not. Ready? Okay. The majority okay. whip. <laughs> uh-huh. Right? You think of some huge dude with like a big whip thrashing people with it, right? Sounds awesome. Right. It sounds incredible. Yeah. Just because, I mean, what about, okay, the Prince of Wales, right? You're the prince of the largest okay. mammals on earth, right? Does he ride them? Does he, does he chat with them? The Prince of Wales. Yeah. Um, so I'm just saying that possibly you like these titles because there's something novel about them, but the same titles exist in our own world. We just don't appreciate them as much because they're not so original. Yeah, that's fair. I, great example of Majority Whip, by the way. That was... It's, it's funny because that actually contradicts something that I think Luke and I have talked about in the past where we wish that our world... I think we talked about this when we were doing our series on um, The Name of the Wind, is we talked about how we wished our world was as epic as a lot of the fantasy world. And I think you bring up a great point in your example, Alec, that it's just we're used, we're so used to it that it doesn't seem as cool. Um, but yeah, that's a great example. Is So related to that, and what I was going to ask you next is how do you come up with these epic sounding titles? And it sounds like that's exactly how you do it. Is that right? Uh, I, you know, fantasy, when you're constructing like a, an epic fantasy world, um, you have to, uh, at least I believe, you have to give the illusion that there's like layers and layers of history and, um, and factions and, and famous people in the, ba- in the background um, in reality, not everything has a very detailed backstory, you know. So as as I'm writing, um, and I need to let's say just throw something down, like I, I will try to make an offhand reference to something like the Thorn Flails of the Seven, um, just because I think it sounds cool. There isn't actually much history there, you know. Um, right. But when I sit down, and I just think about you know. Well, I mean, it, uh, just whatever pops into my head, basically. I'm not, yeah. hope I'm not giving away big author secrets here, but <laughs> there, you know, it's not like I go and meditate in a, in a chamber and um, uh, <laughs> angels come down and gift me with the history of Menachar. I, they just, just sort of comes to me and I throw it down there. Um, but, you know, there is, there is something about having the internal uh, editor or to be able to say, oh, that sounds cool or that sounds stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So... Sometimes I, I hope I fall more on the on the side of the first one, but I could definitely see I, you know, not always do that. Gotcha. So you just kind of let inspiration strike you and then go from there. Right. 
Right. I mean, there are certain aspects of the world that I have quite fleshed out um, and can draw upon. And there's certain aspects that that I just sort of make up on the spot when I need to. <laughs> so I was, I was kind of going to ask you a question similar to that. It was basically, I, I think this book has a lot of, uh, I guess, mysterious aspects to it. Like uh, the magic system's not super uh, specific. There's, uh, I guess, creatures or histories that are not that explained, uh, which I think is, I, I'm guessing is purposeful to where you want to keep mystery in the book. I'm, I'm just wondering, is that stuff, do you actually fully flesh out a lot of that stuff and just not put it in the book? Or do, do you keep it as a mystery to even yourself? Um, so er, at the beginning of the interview, I talked about the sense of wonder, uh, a sense of, uh, and I think a lot of that is, is it, it's related to mystery, right? You don't understand something, but you have a sense of, uh, a sense of it, um, as being greater than, uh, you know, can be appreciated easily. Um, and that's, that's definitely something that I try to put in the books that I write. Um, there are certain aspects that are very well delineated and there's some aspects that are not. And I leave intentionally vague because I think it adds to like the, the atmosphere in the book. Um, I think, uh, like, for example, have you, have you guys read Brandon Sanderson? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was the, actually the first book that we read. We, we read, oh, okay. we read Elantris. You read Elantris. Yeah. I haven't read Elantris. Um, in some of his other books, like the Mistborn books, he has a very kind of mechanistic approach to magic where, where it's, it's almost like a superpower or, um, you know, you, the people do, people do, it's like a formula. Like you're supposed to consume certain metals and then you're able to do certain, you have certain abilities. So you clearly know what the limitations are. And you, you know how it works in a sense, you know, you know, this, 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 this equals this. Um, and for me, that's not the kind of magic system I like. I like it to have a sense of wonder, a sense of uh, unreality to it. Um, I will say that this being my first book, um, obviously one of the biggest critiques has been that I haven't uh, established, you know, the parameters of, of sorcery in my world. Um, and I think in future books, I will probably try to do a better job of explaining it more clearly um, in the second book, uh, the silver sorceress, I, I do make an attempt of that because Kalen starts studying underneath, a, mm -hmm. uh, a, a powerful sorcerer and, and she gives some just, uh, descriptions about how magic works that perhaps make it a little bit more obvious, but certainly in the crimson queen, it just seems like completely random. Um, so yeah, it's something that, that going forward when I do writing, I will definitely try and not make provide borders even if they're fuzzy borders about what magic is capable of doing how it works yeah this was actually something that luke and i as we were reading the book just kind of talking throughout the week the the level of mystery that you left in your book we really liked um and i know especially coming off of king killer and coming off of the name of the wind where the sympathy system has very clear rules to it um and there, yeah, there's some fuzziness with um, speaking the names of things, um, but that world seems a lot more defined, I think. And yeah. we actually saw the mystery as a really profound strength of your book wow. and how there was a lot of stuff that was alluded to. Um, and, you know, Luke and I, it gave us a great starting point to imagine this giant world where 
not everything has a lot of detail about it, but it sounds like it would be really epic. Um, oh, well, I'm and glad so that we could kind of, yeah, so we could kind of build the story ourselves in a way, which was really cool. Yeah, I'm glad that that worked for you. It, it does seem like that there are certain subsets of fantasy readers, and some of them want the, Brand, the Brandon Sanderson approach to magic, and some of them want the Lord of the Rings approach to magic. Um, and they'll complain <laughs> one way or the other, depending <laughs> on what's in the book. Um, so I'm I'm glad that it that it did. It wasn't a, a deal breaker for you guys that you liked it. Yeah, and it it actually that kind of style is great for our our podcasting style also because <laughs> it lets us come up with nonsense to explain <laughs> things. Bird fireworks, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was. Oh man. I I don't know if but, you pictured bird fireworks when you were writing it, but I I just think we were really on the same page right then. Well, it's funny because I was listening to the first your first podcast of the Crimson Queen, and you got to bird fireworks, and I was like, "Wait, well, I actually do kind of have bird fireworks." <laughs> and then it, uh, it came up in the second book because you're right. I think you guys make a good point that magic shouldn't be just about throwing fireballs at your enemies. Um, if magic truly existed in the world, it would have it would be you know far. It's like technology in our world, right? Like you can go shoot a missile at someone, but it it you also have smartphones and Wi-Fi and recording sessions and stuff like that and magic can also do those things it's just that uh it's, you know it, one of the more overt uses is obviously to use magic as a, an offensive weapon right. but it, it the world should be filled with wonder if you have magic and therefore bird fireworks and um uh i, I allude to a, a couple you know things that ha used to happen in the past randomly at, at points that are just trying to give a sense that the world was much more, much more uh, wondrous than it, it, it is in its present age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, that was a really, that was a really good moment for, for us. Uh, so <laughs> we've, we've talked about some other books that we've covered. Uh, I just wanted to ask, do you have like a favorite fantasy book or author? Uh, I have, Yes, I have a favorite fantasy book. Um, my favorite fantasy book is The Scar by China Mieville, uh, which is just... China is probably the only true genius that I think is writes in our in our genre, fantasy. Um, and he's pretty incredible. I don't know. Have you guys read Perdido Street Station or The Scar? I have not. It's definitely on my list, um, but from what I've read, he is very unique. Like his style is very different, um, and he kind of bends the genre in really interesting ways, um, which is how I like heard about China. Uh, but we have not, we haven't gotten to him in the podcast, and I haven't personally gotten to him either. I don't know about no, you. No, I haven't read him either. I, I think um, you guys would would, would find. Perdido Street Station to be an interesting book to do on your on your podcast. Uh, he's he he's sort of the vanguard of well you know it's sort of funny because he himself became a, a, a one of the more famous people to write fantasy when he first published Perdido like back in you know two thousand or whatever and but no one else has really followed him um, because you're right he's just so unique he's such a singular talent that really no one can do what he can do. Um, you know that you there are a lot of people who can write stories like Martin writes or Rothfuss writes, but nobody can write like China Mieville. So yeah, you guys should you guys should check them out. Um, the, anyway, the Scar is my favorite of his books, but I think they're all brilliant. Um, other writers, if I was to choose like a top five in 
fantasy. I really like uh, Guy Gabriel Kay's Under Heaven, which is a phenomenal book. I like K.J. Bishop's The Etch City. Um, I like oh, I like George R. R. Martin. I think probably the best book of that series is Storm of Swords, the third one, but I like the first book and the second book as well a lot. Um, yeah, so yeah. those are some of my... I try to read broadly within the genre. Like I like traditional high fantasy, like maybe D to Paxanarian. Um, the more grimdark stuff like Abercrombie and Martin, I also like that. The new weird like China Mieville, um and even stuff like, you know, Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norell, uh, that's that was a slightly different take on, on fantasy. Um, I think the genre itself is just so broad. It's, it's wonderful. Right. Yeah. Got to dabble in lots of different subgenres. Do you, do you ever like read about a character maybe that you want to just like transplant into your book? So I'm uh, rereading right now, um, the blade itself by Joe Abercrombie, mm-hmm. um, and the characters in it are so phenomenal. I feel like a complete fraud reading <laughs> this book. Uh, there are some writers that I uh, that I read, and I'm like, oh, you know, I could I could write like that. I could I could do this scene as well as he did or better. I know this character is kind of I'm not such a huge fan, but Joe Abercrombie, like his characters are amazing. Um, and I I definitely I, I think I have some strengths as a writer, and characterization is not one of them. Um, and so it's something that. Uh, as I'm reading this book, I'm definitely trying to take mental notes about how I can help craft compelling characters because have either of you guys read the blade itself? I have. I have. Yeah. I don't, Dan, have you? Yeah. So do you remember characters like Glocka and the bloody nine, uh, nine fingers? Like they're just phenomenal, just phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah. That, that, that book is definitely, uh, I think I've read the three books in that trilogy and they're, uh, they're pretty yeah you're right it's i guess it's a pretty character driven book and it's uh i don't know very i don't know i don't know if the word is realistic but just like you can imagine them being actual people i guess uh, right well yeah cuz they they like swear casually and <laughs> they feel realistic in their responses to situations even the warriors are like they they always from the third third person perspective you're getting they're like thinking about how nervous they are about situations and they always ha- and you know they uh they all have seemed to have very petty motivations at times like real people right, yeah uh, is it yeah there's just something very uh extre- extremely realistic but also very compelling about about the characters in that particular book it's something that i need to definitely need to work on as a writer hmm. uh so sticking on the topic of kind of other fantasy um as i was reading crimson queen i was kind of hearing a lot of either references or maybe just echoes of inspiration that you may have touched on so for example when they're in the the spider temple and all those venomous spiders come out from the walls it just sounded so much to me like a DD dungeon that they were exploring um and like the end when they talk about finally it's revealed how they became immortal reminded me a lot of like full metal alchemist and how you have to take the souls of everybody in order to extend your life uh a large amount um is there are there were there explicit inspirations that you had going into this book or are there things that after you've written it now you realize have kind of crept into the book that you were kind of subconsciously working with i think a mix of both um 
when I sat down to write Crimson Queen, I wanted to write something that was reminiscent of the high fantasy that I loved growing up. Um, books like the Dragonlance Forgotten Realms book, but sort of updated, you know, maybe the writing is a bit more mature. Maybe the, the plot is a, is a bit uh, less, you know, black and white, more complicated. Um, so, and I, and you know, the funny thing is I didn't see very much of those books being published anymore. Um, I, right now in fantasy, the trend is uh, grimdark, very dark, realistic, gritty fantasy like Abercrombie and Martin and even different, even worse because a lot of them don't have any humor, which isn't the kind of fantasy I like to read. Right. So I wanted to write a book that sort of harkened back to the fantasy books that I loved as a kid. And maybe the people who read books like that as a kid um, would appreciate this one because it's not completely childish as many of those books were, uh, but it has a lot of the same elements. Um, and in terms of particular instances in the book, you've picked up on one perfectly uh, I, I played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, and there was nothing more exciting for me as you know a, a player was to like you know you're delving into a forgotten ruin or a temple, and you're you're questing for treasure and fighting monsters, and who knows what mysteries you'll find uh, down below. And that was exactly the sense that I was going for when I wrote that little section. That was essentially a homage to Dungeons and Dragons um, because I like that kind of stuff. So in the Crimson Queen, I put in a lot of stuff that that. I loved about the genre um, and that you're right. That was one of them um, in terms of actually that scene itself. What I took inspiration from directly was um, th there's a scene in the deed of Paxanarian, um, which is a really great fantasy book by Elizabeth moon where Pax uh, delves into a ruin and has killed some monsters and finds some treasure um, and escapes. And that, and I, when I was when I read that as a kid, and when I reread the book, because that that book holds up, uh, it's still a, a section that I really like. And so I wanted a section like that in in my book. And so it's it's sort of when I was initially conceiving the book, that section seems a little bit out of place. Like it, it doesn't have to be there. They could have just gone straight on to the to the city of Theris where they went after. But I wanted something like that in there. So I actually sort of made it um, a focal point of that section of the book. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it it did a good amount of like it did a fair amount of world building in terms of you know there's still this ancient history that is yet to be discovered. But I was definitely as I was reading that my D and D instincts were lighting up as he's getting ready to touch this table, and it was just like, oh, you're gonna that's a that's almost total party kill move right there. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's, yeah, that's super cool. Um, you did a great job because that's exactly what I thought of. Um, I have kind of a almost completely different direction where instead of taking things from something else or taking inspiration from something else, do you ever, when you're like, I don't know, world building or something like that, do you ever consider just changing completely fundamental aspects of the world? Like, gravity or whether there's a sun or not or anything like that or or just like how do you develop a world and, and do you ever try to come up with super outside of the box things like that well for the crimson queen I, I saw it as as a homage to to high fantasy so i had to follow sort of the basic setup that high fantasy falls which is traditionally centered on a a world that res or a land that resembles medieval europe and there are you know other cultures elsewhere on its on the periphery that perhaps mimic other real world 
cultures. Um, and the story evolves from there. Um, I think it would be interesting to try and write a fantasy book where things are more developed whole cloth. I think if you lack that grounding, though, in reality, because um, that, that's really what makes it easier to uh, orient yourself in these worlds quickly, is that they essentially are a mirror of, uh, or a, you know, a slightly distorted mirror of, you know, the history that we know. Um, if you were to develop everything from whole cloth, it would it would require a lot more setup and a lot more uh, time spent to to create that sort of um, to get that to make it seem plausible. Uh, I guess I could say. Um, yeah. I guess you guys. I don't know if you've read Way of Kings. I think it's Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. Yeah, yeah, I've read um, that And so he very clearly made a conscious decision to make the world seem very, very different. Like there are these massive storms that sweep over everything, and the entire rest of the world has basically evolved to deal with these massive storms that, that, um, you know, uh, that are so destructive, um, you know, and there's no horses they ride around on, they ride. Well, no, their wagons are pulled by giant crabs, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, I think it'd be fun to try to create a world like that. That was so different, but it would, uh, require a different thing, a different approach to the book. Cause you need to ground the reader somehow, um, and I guess you need, you know, this that's going to be like a 10 book series and each book is like 800 right. pages. So he's given himself the space to craft a new world. Um, the Crimson Queen and its sequels are much shorter and I see them as sort of fast paced, um, plot driven books uh, that are fairly tight. Um, so it would require, it just it would just require a lot more sprawling sort <laughs> of approach to, to world building, I think. Um, speaking of world building, something that isn't super typical in a lot of fantasy books, but seems like, I don't know, it would be interesting to include would be some kind of sport that's not related to combat. Um, have you ever considered including some kind of sport that's not like fencing or arms practice in a fantasy book that you're writing? Or have you seen it and have you encountered it in a book? Um, that you thought was really creative and interesting? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm sure I've encountered it off the top of my head. I can't remember. Um, I, I, when you say something like that, I think of like uh, those ball games I used to play in ancient, um, I think it's the Mayans or the Aztecs. Yeah, where it's like basketball. Yeah, something like that, um, where they run around with balls, heavy balls, throwing them at each other or something like that. <laughs> um, it, it would be cool. It would have to be, there ought to be some aspect of it. I feel that would only work. Just have just just describing the rules of a new ball game doesn't sound very interesting. But if it could somehow be integrated into the culture of the world, or um, you know, maybe, you know, Quidditch, for example, you know, there's something that's right. uniquely only possible in that world. Um, it could be fun. It could be interesting. Yeah, um, I haven't sat down and thought about such a game, but uh, it's definitely something that. Uh, be interesting to do actually in the second book right in the beginning sort of the rules of oh this is terrible um i'm having a, a complete mind blank but the, <laughs> the board game that they often play in my world um, right the one that's kind of like chess yes it's kind of like chess it's actually sort of described in a bit more detail how it works and i just did that because it seemed reasonable uh to do do such a thing you know since it's constantly being referenced right. um but uh but in terms of a an actual sport, I haven't haven't come up with one. <laughs> so, also related to to world building, you have these really 
interesting and mysterious organizations that are a part of your world. Things like the Reliquary, the Pure, the Librarians of Vis. Um, do you see yourself as like, if you were to be in the story, which of these kind of organizations do you think you would most likely gravitate towards? Like, would you be one of the Fist members or? Well, you know, the way that a medieval fantasy world works is that most likely you'll end up being a peasant somewhere, <laughs> scratching out in the dirt. Um, but right, if but I was a peasant be... can have dreams, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So if I was to, if I was, if I, well, the, the peasant would probably be like, oh, I want to be a member of the pure or something because, you know, they oh, get that's... filled up with religious propaganda. But um, <laughs> if I was able to approach my world and just pop myself into it, I would probably want to be a member of the Scalia in uh, uh, the in Hera, in um yeah Harath the uh the Crimson Queen's magical school because uh, I think that what I was going for there was they they're like rediscovering magic they're crafting mm-hmm. their own versions of spells they're returning they feel like they're doing great work and it's also exciting because they're developing uh you know wondrous abilities um I think that would be fun to be a part of you know it'd be like part of a startup of an internet company or something that was about to get unicorn valuation or something like that <laughs> right yeah it's like where everything's happening like the atmosphere is like buzzing like you can almost right. taste the caffeine in the air from everybody running around right yeah exactly everyone's super yeah. excited about what everything they're doing in terms of you seeing how people respond to your books this is this is going to be a very <laughs> small detail but do you ever get uh frustrated with people interpreting things like just the way that you know is just wrong or do you ever the example that i'm thinking of is me and dan always pronounce things wrong do you do you ever like get frustrated if you know that one way that something is pronounced but everyone uses it a wrong way no not at all um i think books are very personal uh and so if someone wants to like the names when you guys were saying the names i very rarely hear other people try and um uh, pronounce things that I've written. I have it in my head as being obvious, like, oh, it's Kalen. Oh, it's Demoria. Oh, it's, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, but hearing you guys, but it doesn't matter. It's whatever oh, works right, for you. Right. If you think that sounds best, then then that's great. Then go with that. Um, you know, you're right. There are so many apostrophes and, you know, consonants without vowels in fantasy books that you really can't get upset about however things are pronounced. Um, there are things that I that do frustrate me a little bit. I, I don't read too many reviews because if you get a good one, you feel smug. If you feel get a bad one, you just feel devastated and don't want right. to write for a few days. Um, but like, I just happened to glance at some of my reviews. I don't know why, but in the most recent book, someone was had like a huge readers are funny in that they latch onto small things and it will like completely like they worry them and they, they get really upset about things that, that you're surprised they get so upset about. And in this particular case, the, the reader was complaining that I had multiple people moving across large distances and um, he got really upset that like it, it, that the times he didn't think the times matched up, but in reality, (laughs) what what annoyed me, what annoyed me was that I had actually sat down and I looked at the map and I tried to figure out how much time would elapse between moving from here to here based on what I'd already written in previous books. I did make an attempt to try and make it realistic. You know, it takes one month to go from here to here. So if we went to here, it would be about three weeks. And I tried my best. And, it, you know, maybe I got it off a little bit. But 
the effort was there. And so to be called out on that and to get like, you know, stars taken <laughs> off on a review because, you know, they didn't feel like my, I mean, did, were they able to watch the last Game of Thrones? You can teleport now <laughs> in that world. Um, if you need an army somewhere in the middle of the Westlands, you know, Dothraki Horde comes over the ridge all of a sudden. Like, did you have the same problem with that? Like, I don't know. I tried. I guess that's the problem. If I feel like I tried and someone calls me out on it, I feel bad. If um, they actually do point out something that I made a continuity error or I, you know, didn't think about something like, like, why would you, why would you ride down a ringing road when you're trying to run away from someone? Very good point. Very good point. I wish that was something that I was smart enough to have thought of. Um, uh, So yeah, sometimes I don't mind. Sometimes if I feel like I did make an attempt, or at least I thought I tried, then it, it does annoy me. Yeah. I, Sorry, that I was think, kind of a rant. <laughs> that's fair. I think that's we, what this podcast is about, so you're totally on, we're on board. Yeah. Okay, we, so we hot more, takes more and author rants. Rant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's, that's kind of a, a funny point, because we often try to find super small details and worry them. I think w- the way we normally do it, though, is... Uh, if we find something that we actually think is kind of odd, we try to explain it, uh, which is kind of a fun project for us, I think. Just it, it almost like brings, I think, brings us into the process, which I, I have fun doing on our podcast, where if there's some kind of hole, we try to fill it with something. Do you ever like, or do, do you think that when you're done writing a book and there's some things that aren't super detailed that you have like, completely drawn out in your mind uh do you like it when i guess readers try to come up with uh just like ideas on what would happen there or theories or things like that oh no i mean if if i leave i left it vague even if i have an actual defined sense of what it is um i can't fault readers at all i mean that's what i do as a reader i'm always trying to draw connections or to explain things that i read um you know and i'm wrong a lot of the time but it's still fun, and, you know. As a writer, I think that's great. I'm I'm just excited and happy that people can enjoy my books enough that they want to do something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I it is funny getting a lot of emails and notes and messages, and I get a lot of fan th- not a lot, but I I get some fan theories about you know oh Kalen and the Crimson Queen are going to get together, and someone wrote like this long letter <laughs> about how that was like the end end result of you know the books was going to be that ruling Demoria as king and queen and i was i just wanted to respond back and be like well you know i see of her as, as being like 29 or 30 and he's right, like 15 right. so probably not but i didn't <laughs> i just you know let him go with it and I'm, I'm glad that he sat down and thought about it enough to uh and wrote something out about it that he cared enough basically yeah absolutely so that's it's funny you bring up theories um a big segment on our show is to come up with a theory as well and find, you know, kind of find evidence about it throughout the book. Um, And we came up with a couple through our read through, but I'm more curious about if you have read any theories or if if a fan has sent you a theory that you have either, either already written and wished that that theory had been right. Like if they, if they wrote a theory that was cooler than something that you had thought of, or if they came up with a theory that was just like, very funny it was something that was definitely not right maybe not like they were saying something that was you know not trying to bring them down or anything but just came up with a theory that given the evidence it kind of makes sense but it's definitely not right does that make sense yes no i've definitely 
gotten those theories before. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I, I have definitely got them before. Um, just because it's extremely fresh, because I listened to your previous podcast the day before. Um, I thought you guys spent some time talking about the the finger bones of Ama, or mm. the finger bones of what's well, Tethys, the paladin mm-hmm. of Ama. And uh, I really, really liked your theory of the idea of that the, some of the other sorcerers had acquired them and were using it to shield themselves. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. And maybe that's something I would have worked in if I thought about it. In reality, I consider those finger bones to be lost in the world. Right. And they're yeah, probably not yeah. coming back. Um, but uh, but I thought that was a really cool idea. And if I had thought of it, then, yeah, I, I might have worked that in uh, somewhere. Maybe, I don't know. I'm writing the third book now. Maybe I can have one pop out and Aliano will be like, oh, and here I've got this if we need it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're leaving that door open. So that theory's not dead. All of our <laughs> listeners, that theory is still live it's live and wriggling <laughs> if if it if, if that if that third bone or if a finger bone shows up in the third book i will definitely give you guys a shout out in the back of the book <laughs> awesome uh that's that's the most success i think any of dan's theories have ever gotten uh <laughs> <laughs> we, hey that's not true we haven't talked to george yet <laughs> that's that's right yeah <laughs> so there there's a line near the end of Crimson Queen. Um, and it's when Keelan is talking to the Crimson Queen and they're chatting about the arc of the story. Um, and at one point she says to him when he's talking about his life as a narrative, that it implies that we're all a part of some grand tale directed by some higher power for the whims of others. And she says, I reject such a notion. And at first I kind of chuckled and was like, Oh, the, cause their characters in a book. Um, but then, uh, I, it led me to a question that I need you to answer and that's, are we a part of a book right now? Oh, so like we actually, that, that, now that is a hot take. <laughs> um, I would have to say if my life, uh, I would make the Truman show look interesting. I think if my life was <laughs> a book, um, I, I would actually pity anyone who was tuning in to watch my life of like as a full-time writer, which is basically, uh, wake up down a bunch of coffee, slouch around in pajamas for a while, try to do some writing, <laughs> eat lunch, try to do some more writing, cook dinner, and go to bed again. So, yeah, that, uh, it's possible, I suppose. But, um, uh, again, I don't think I'm getting renewed for my next season, if that's the case. <laughs> well, but then the question, we just pushed the question back to, are we the ones in the Demon's Mouth Tavern who are there for, like, mm, 20 pages, and then the main characters go off and finish the story without us? <laughs> oh oh yeah that, okay that's a, that now that's that's pretty interesting too um yeah so so we're all part of like kanye west and kim kardashian's story basically but just very poor <laughs> players i'm excited for my chapter with kanye west <laughs> you'll just be like in the in the background someday as, as you know walking down the street as they're getting mobbed by paparazzi great probably not um <laughs> But you got to flesh out all the side characters if you really want a well-developed world. Yeah. Right. I hope we're in a high fantasy world so I get at least some screen time. <laughs> well, if if the story is about West and Kardashians, it definitely is a fantasy world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually kind of, I think I would prefer mine to be a, the, the main character in my story is probably LeBron James, uh, just so that I can <laughs> at some point meet him. 
And <laughs> I actually <laughs> kind of started this podcast in order to meet LeBron James, which <laughs> might sound stupid, but uh-huh. uh, I think it's going well so far. <laughs> which leads me to my next question. Uh, do you do you know LeBron James? <laughs> or do you, have any, uh, do you have any connections to LeBron James? No, just, just but trying, um, just trying to get him on the show. I don't. Know. But I don't. I don't preclude the possibility of meeting him in the future. And so, you know, if I do, yeah, you'll, uh, you'll, I'll call you up and let you know. Awesome. Yeah, Thank I appreciate you. your hesitancy to saying that if you happen to meet LeBron James, you will mention <laughs> this podcast to him specifically. I think that's a good instinct, and you should definitely. Definitely. I, I, I have to admit, I, I am a bit curious as to why this isn't, you know, the LeBron James Appreciation Podcast. Because <laughs> honestly, if you did something like that, you'd probably be the only one, I would assume, and uh, you might come to his attention that way. Um, I am unaware of his interest in fantasy books. Uh, if it does exist, this is an excellent avenue to reach his attention. But um, it, I find that not the most likely. <laughs> right. Uh, Dan, see, Dan had that thought on our first episode too, our actual intro episode, but I explained it to him and, uh, you know, we don't have to get into it now, but (laughs) (laughs) I I think that, I think there's a way to get LeBron on the podcast. And we actually have, this, this can lead me to a a legitimate question where we, we have a, uh, idea of, we really would like to get someone completely unrelated like some celebrity completely unrelated to a book to sign a book like i want lebron james to sign a copy of redwall so that i can have do you have any like the famous people or something that you would like to read your book wow um i guess that comes down to like famous people that i respect you know and would, would <laughs> really love if they if they read my book and respected me um uh, ah, off the top of my head, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Obama, sure, <laughs> he reads my book and likes it. That would be fantastic. He seems like he's a really good guy. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Ruth Bader well, Ginsburg. I don't know. <laughs> this, this, you, you, you have put in the correct amount of thought on this. I, I recognize that this is not a very, a very well thought. Well, out. I'll tell you what, Alec. You said you would put in a good word with LeBron if you meet him. If we interview. Obama or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we will tell her about your book or him about your book, and we'll try and get them to send you a signed copy with a little note that's how much they like they enjoyed it. Okay, well now I'm getting excited. Well, that's good. <laughs> nice. Uh, do you? So this is a question about books being turned into movies. Now I'm not. I, I, I'm guessing you have not really consider your book getting turned into movies i'm just kind of curious as to how authors have or as to what authors thoughts are on book to movie adaptations um could you ever see your book being turned into a movie uh i thought about that as well i'm not sure if my book would lend itself well to to being filmed as a you know obviously most epic fantasies I think would work better with like a, you know, an HBO series as opposed to a movie because cramming mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. stuff into a, into a, into a, a single two hour, you know, period, it would be rather difficult. Um, I, I don't know if my book would, would transfer very well. Um, yeah, I have thought about that. And the dangerous, the danger is really is that 
there's always a good chance that if fantasy is something that is really hard to do, mm-hmm. right? For every Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, you have like, you know, Aragon or you, there, there's just there's the number of, it's very easy to do a cheesy fantasy series and horrible. <laughs> um, on the plus side, they probably gave you a lot of money to do it. So I'm sure that that would help soothe the, you know, whatever uh, hurt feelings there are about the, you know, their, their lack of coolness of your, um, of your, of the translation. But um yeah, so yeah, I'd be down, <laughs> but uh, HBO hasn't hasn't been cousin called yet. So, well, I, I think we hope for the sake of you finishing writing this series, you don't get a, a show until after it's done. <laughs> right? Yeah, it does seem to. Uh, although you know, a lot of the the other famous authors working now, like the top of the fantasy pile, it actually really surprises me because I, I would say the three most popular writers working right now are Martin. Rothfuss and Scott Lynch, who wrote The Lies of Locke Lamora, and all three of them seem to have a lot of trouble producing books. Like indie 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 authors, some of them can churn out four, five, six books a year, and some of them are really good. Uh, like Will White can come out with a book every three months that is just tremendous. But some of these these um, now famous authors, it's like they're paralyzed by their own success, and it's been six, mm-hmm. seven, eight years between books. Um, and at some point, you know, if you just write a hundred words a day, they would have produced an epic volume by now. <laughs> so um, it's uh, it is kind of interesting, and, and that those authors are still the most popular authors. I think they probably sell the most outside of Brandon Sanderson, and yet they're not really writing anymore, or they don't seem to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not, and they haven't finished their series. So they've just it's a it's it's pretty fascinating. I, I've tried to think of why that is, and I think it might have something to do with social media that in the past authors, there was a barrier between the constant critiques and discussion mm-hmm. of their works. Mm-hmm. Um, and nowadays it's so omnipresent and they can't avoid it. And it leads to like a serious paralysis because you, you hear the criticism, you hear um, the expectations and it just becomes so overwhelming that it becomes difficult to produce creatively. Sorry. That's, that, that's another non sequitur sort of rant there but um, it's something i've thought about and uh and uh, i think it's it's an interesting aspect of being an author in the modern age is how all those barriers seem to have gone away and so you're constantly constantly in contact with with everyone who's read your book and interested in your future works and i think it's, it's a lot of pressure yeah absolutely i think that's a great point um yeah because i can't imagine being george r, r. martin and I can't imagine writing one word of a book as George R. R. Martin when everybody already has this world built up in their head and you don't want to ruin this this thing that somebody cherishes in a way. It's almost like it's beyond you at that point and it's like a cultural thing. It's not just your book. And so it becomes this scary thing to, to touch because you might ruin it. Um, do you feel that kind of pressure or did you feel that kind of pressure when the Crimson Queen started be kind of blowing up? Hugely. Um, I completely sympathized with them, actually. And I'm obviously a much, much, much smaller fish. But um, uh, when I first published Queen, I was just hoping to sell a, you know, a few dozen copies, 100 copies, make back the cost of um, the book itself that I had spent, uh, that I, you know, the money that I had spent while putting it together, like the cover and editing costs and things like that. I wasn't, my expectations were extremely low. Mm-hmm. And then after two or three months, it just sort of blew up. Um and I really wasn't prepared for it. And uh, it did take me a long time to get into the 
proper headspace to write to finish writing the sequel. Um, so I can, and I did feel some pressure that a lot of people really like the first book. Um, and I, and, you know, I think a lot of authors suffer from doubts and, um, uh, uncertainties. Uh, and even if they write something that's well received, if the next thing doesn't, uh, a very common, um, comment on the Crimson Queens reviews were like, oh, good book. Uh, very excited for the sequel. I'm sure it's going to be even better which is like the last thing an author wants to hear, right? Because, <laughs> because I, I, I have really have no control over that. I can try my best, but there are a right. lot of factors that go into a book being good. Um, and, you know, I don't, it's, anyway, I'm just saying that it's, it is sometimes, it, I found it difficult to write at times because I was afraid that um, I would be outed as a fraud once the second book came out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what kind of things helped you get past that? Um, actually when the book was doing really, really well, when I was selling like, you know, 8,000 copies a month or something like that, um, I was having trouble writing, but as the, you know, books, unless your name of the wind, they don't keep selling like that. So after <laughs> three or four months when the sales had sort of died down and, and I wasn't getting mentioned on our fantasy and I wasn't, uh, getting as much fan mail or anything like that. Uh-huh it was easier for me to open up my word document and start writing um, because uh, the hubbub had died down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and there are pluses and minuses to that because if I had managed to get the book out faster, I'm sure it would have, or the, sorry, the second book faster, it would have done better than it did. It didn't do terribly, but it, it had been like almost two years since I published the Crimson Queen and a lot of readers move on or, you know, it's hard to, whereas if it had come out, six months after the Crimson Queen, I think there would have been a much better um, read through, you know, to the second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but it was, I, it was easier for me to write the second book um, when I didn't feel like the book, the first book was sort of um, on people's lips, I guess. Right. Kind of like the spotlight burns bright or burns hotly. Like right. as soon exactly. as it yes. dimmed the pressure was off and you could get back to what you were doing. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good uh, metaphor. I think. Um, So Alec, if you have any shout outs um, for our 12 listeners, Hey guys. Um, Or if you want to have anything you want to plug, uh, go right ahead. Uh, I guess I could plug um, that the sequel to the Crimson Queen came out uh, just about two months ago. It's called the silver sorceress. Um, It, uh, uh, this is, it's, it's going to be a trilogy. And so, uh, there's, uh, more developments in the story. Uh, things take a little bit of a diversion, but, um, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. So I hope people who enjoyed the Crimson Queen will go on to that. Um, and that's about it. Uh, have to say, uh, thank you very, guy- very much guys for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I know I get on little tangents there, but you guys, um, uh, indulge me. Uh, it was fun to uh, listen to some of the very, very bold claims that you uh, came up with yeah. regarding my book. Yeah, you, you're talking about the hot takes. Yeah, uh, some of them were more lukewarm, <laughs> but uh, others were pretty hot. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, those are just coming from a couple of dumb nerds. <laughs>